This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Reporter David Goodman tells us about a Hispanic woman on death row in Texas. Melissa Lucio, who was arrested in 2007 after her uh, two-year-old daughter um, died um, at home. She, uh, uh, Melissa had said that uh, she had put her daughter down for a nap and, and uh, the baby didn't wake up. And she was immediately interrogated by police and eventually charged um, with murder. Coming up in this episode of Colors. Kids getting flack about their hair. I talked to young kids. I talked to some kids who were five and six years old. Charlie Locke is a reporter and she wrote a piece for New York Times for Kids called Six Kids Speak Out Against Hair Discrimination. One of them was Jet Hawkins, five years old. He had this experience, experienced this discrimination when he was in preschool. And now there is a a law that was passed in all of Illinois. He lives in Chicago, where uh, it's now illegal to discriminate against kids for having natural hair in any school in Illinois. And it's called the Jet Hawkins Act. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. My name is Albert Takeshi Shimabukuro. I am a Japanese Okinawan here in the Washington, D.C. area. My name is Cindy Smith. I am a black female. I currently live in Los Angeles, California. My name is Kindy Andrews. I'm black, Caribbean, British, and in Birmingham, the UK. I am Susan Goodyear. I am white. I'm female. And I live in upstate New York. And I'm JJ Green. I'm black. And this is Colors. It sounds right, boys. How does your hair look today? What are you doing with it? How does it look? How are you wearing it? For somebody like me with a very short, close-cropped look, not a lot you can do with it. But people with more abundant hair can do a lot of different things with it. But, But more importantly, is anyone saying anything to you about your hair? More specifically, are they saying something negative to you about it? Not that it's any of their business. Well, did you know that children as young as four or five having to deal with this? On this episode, we're going to talk with Charlie Locke. She's a freelance journalist who writes for the New York Times Kids Edition, and she's going to talk to us about a very ugly trend that's happening and some efforts to push back against it. Charlie, thank you for joining us. Um, You wrote a really interesting story for the New York Times for Kids, and it's about kids and their hair. And it's sad on a lot of levels, But there is some optimism and hope in there as well. Um, Could you tell us the title of the story and why you wrote it? 
Yes, absolutely. So the story was called Six Kids Speak Out Against Hair Discrimination. And for the story, I talked to six black kids across the country who all experienced discrimination because of wearing their natural hair to school. And um, that discrimination took a bunch of different forms from being suspended or being sent home from school to uh, being expelled for one student. Um, and, and the biggest thing was really the, the lasting blows to the, their self-confidence and how they think about themselves. But um, I, I wrote the story after reading about one student who had this experience in Illinois and then got involved in changing the laws in Illinois. And it made me curious if this was something that other students experienced. And the more that I researched it and talked to people, the more I found out how common this experience still is at schools for kids. One of the things that I, I found disturbing about reading the story was the age of these kids. Tell us, tell us about these, the ages of these kids and, and, and really the circumstances around them being thrust into this very big arena. Yeah, that was one of the most striking parts of reporting this story was talking to kids who are five years old, six years old about what they've gone through. And, you know, it's it, when you think about kids talking about traumatic experiences like this, it's hard to remember how young they are. But when I was talking to them, you know, um, one of them was playing with his Legos while he was talking to me on the phone. One of them was telling me about his Taekwondo classes before we started talking about it. These are just little, little kids. And when you talk to them and when you read your, their stories, you remember just how young they are to be yeah. going through something like this. So, um, Talk about the, how they were able to engage with you, because clearly these kids, these little kids are wise beyond their years and perhaps because they've had to be. But give us a sense of how they interacted and communicated with you and were able to tell their stories to you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a tough part. I, I write for the New York Times for kids section a lot, and it's a tough part of my work, getting kids to feel comfortable with you and open up and express themselves about this. Because when you're five or six years old, you don't know how to how to talk about your feelings. It's hard to express beyond sad or angry or something like that, how something makes you feel. And a lot of what I do is talk to, in this case, I talk to the moms or the grandmothers of these kids at length before I talk to them to get to know them a bit and share a bit about me and what I was trying to cover in the story and also to get to know their kids and what would make them feel comfortable. You know, young kids like this, um, sometimes they want to talk to you about other stuff first and have you be really warm on the phone and kind of chat about their lives. Sometimes it's really um talking with their mom or grandmother there to kind of help facilitate the conversation. But um, yeah, it's, it's really hard for young kids to talk about this. And I think the fact that they were able to be so articulate and clear about this experience is really, um, it's, it's really because they have to be, they have to be able to talk about this. That's right. So to dig a little deeper into this, um, there was a piece that you wrote in your story and, and you said, one day last spring, Jet Hawkins, five, asked his mom to braid his hair for him. He loved the way it looked. Quote, I was so proud and happy, says Jet, who lives in Chicago. But when he got to school, his mother says an administrator called her and told her that, her that his hairstyle had broken a school policy that banned students from wearing braids, locks, and twists. 
pick that story up from there for us. Yeah, absolutely. So Jet's mom, Ida, had to come pick him up from school and had to change his hairstyle for him to continue going to preschool there. And she posted about this experience on, I think, on Facebook, on social media, and it got a little bit of local news attention. And then a state senator, an Illinois state senator named Mike Simmons, read the article. And I talked to him for this story, too. And he wears his hair in freeform locks. And he remembers what it was like when he was Jet's age and learning about, you know, feeling discriminated against in schools and and by peers. And he ended up proposing legislation in Illinois um, so that it would be become illegal for schools to discriminate against any kids because of their natural hairstyles. And the, the act, which was passed last year and took effect in January, is called the Jet Hawkins Act. Uh, that's the part of the story that I really think is uplifting, hopeful, and pretty cool. To a five-year-old that has a, a, sta- a basically a state law named after him already, and it, I think, gives him and other kids who might have found themselves in this situation or in some other situation the understanding that if you are, if you feel like you've been mistreated, there is a path for you to follow, and that path can result in something like this if you go for it. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the other children that you talked to. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the other kids that I talked to, Ezekiel, actually was affected by the Jet Hawkins Act. Ezekiel is nine years old. He lives in Chicago. He's in third grade now. And when he was in first grade, so two years ago, he was often sent to the principal's office because of his hair. He wears dreads and often wears a cap to school. He's Rastafarian. And, um, He ended up missing a ton of class, which is another impact of this that I think we often don't hear about is these kids are really missing learning by being suspended or sent to the principal's office or having to go through this. It's not only singling them out emotionally, but it is setting back their learning as well. Um, And Ezekiel now is able for the first time to wear his hair how he wants to at school because of the Jet Hawkins Act. Um, Some of the other kids that I talked to... um, I talked to um, a young woman, Kimora, who lives in Florida, who's 14, and she's in eighth grade now. But last year, she was wearing her hair in Bantu knots for picture day. And uh, a school employee told her that she couldn't take a school picture because of how she was wearing her hair. And she got sent home. She eventually straightened her hair for photo retake day. Um, and eventually she, the, the law, ha, the laws have not been changed in Florida, but she eventually switched to a school where there are more students of color and she hasn't had issues at that school. But for Kamora and for a lot of the kids I talked to, the, the impacts on self-confidence really last a long time. And even if you change schools or even if the laws change, it still really stays with you. Another one of the kids that I talked to, a little girl named Ava, who is nine, um, she's in fourth grade. And two years ago, when she was in second grade, she wore her hair down. She has very beautiful, voluminous, curly hair. And her teacher told her that her hair was a distraction and made her go to the principal's office and made her mom pick her up from school. Um, And Ava has switched schools since then, but um, she's really she just the way she talks about it she's clearly really traumatized by that experience and delaware where she lives actually passed the crown act um which stands for um 
uh, creating a respectful and open world for natural hair, which is the Jed Hawkins Act is is different, but accomplishes something similar. And a lot of states have passed the Crown Act now. Yeah, um, I just want. But, I, I, yeah, was, go I was I was going to ask you about that Crown Act. Um, yeah. There are other states that have passed it as well and have jumped on this, and 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 clearly they understand this moment is important right now. So, um, what do you think it is that these states and these legislators in other states see, um, aside from the fact that these are little kids or just kids in general, but what is it that they see that has said to them, okay, we need to do this and do this now? I think part of it is for legislators who are black and went through these experiences, seeing how little has changed for kids who are going through this now. And from talking to state Senator Mike Simmons in Illinois, um, you know, he read this article about Jet in the local papers and thought, is this still what kids are going through, you know, 20, 30 years after he was in school and feeling like this is one, you know, we, we can't get rid of the racism that kids, we can't legislate away the racism that kids experience in school, but this is one way that we can address it and deal with it. And the Crown Act also is not limited to schools. So the Crown Act um, would and has made it illegal to discriminate against natural hair in workplaces too. So it's for adults as well. So what are the adults saying? I'm sure you encountered some thoughts from adults, mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, you know, other older, what are the older folks that you encountered? What are their thoughts too? I mean, I've heard what you said about some of these legislators asking the question, are we still doing this? Um, But what are some of the, the, the parents or the guardians saying to you about their feelings? Yeah, I mean, I really just think that they they want their kids to be able to wear their hair how they want to and to be able to wear their hair naturally and feel really proud of who they are. Um, a lot of the, the Black mothers that I talked to for this story talked to me about um, trying to help their kids feel a real sense of pride in their heritage and in what they look like and... Um, and, and, and really trying to make sure that they don't feel this trauma at school about who they are naturally and, and what they look like. Um, a, a couple of the mothers talked to me about um, um, what it was like to try and, and grapple with the ways that wearing natural black hair can disadvantage people in, in racist workplaces and trying to prepare their kids for that world, but also try and affect change so that their kids don't have to experience that. And so that it, um, that isn't as prevalent anymore. Charlie, do you get the sense that this could have been possible before George Floyd, before 2020? Do you get the sense that any of, I guess, this groundswell of support, if you can call it that, that maybe it's starting slowly, but you know, if there are 14 states now or 15 that are getting on on board with us. Do you get the sense that there would have been this kind of support before George Floyd was killed? I I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think that this has been part of, of, as you say, a a groundswell and a real sense of momentum around creating change and feeling like now is is the time when this needs to happen. I mean, I, I think that the first Crown Act was passed in 2019, but I think that the the movement around this and the way that it is really starting to gain momentum and is now being considered in the U.S. Senate, it was passed in the House earlier this year. I think the possibility that this 
this could be enacted across the U.S. Um, really, yeah. really comes from that summer and really comes from this movement. You know, it's really interesting, the story that we're doing, um, this conversation with you, because my wife gave me a calendar for Christmas. And I stopped to take a look at it uh, over the weekend, and she reminded me the name of the calendar is called Crowns, and it's got kids on it. And if I'm not mistaken, our friend Mr. Hawkins is on this calendar with other (laughs) kids. And this is why this story is so important at this moment, because it's an awakening for me who... 30, 40 years ago, remember these discussions about you can't wear your hair this way or you can't do this, you can't do that, thinking as your legislator that you talked about had said, okay, we're moving on. But then talking to you last week when we did our pre-interview about this and then just kind of thinking about what I knew about, you know, this whole situation, going home and then realizing, wow. This is right in front of me, and I haven't done anything about it. You know, I hadn't looked further than, okay, what day is it? And who's this cute kid here? And this story that you're telling me (laughs) that you wrote with these kids is out there. And people really need to pay attention to this, not just because it's about hair and not just because it's about a specific ethnicity or not, but it's just the wrong thing to do to put kids in this kind of situation, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of the power of hearing these stories from kids. And the six kids that I talked to had these experiences, and now they're all advocating for changing the laws. These are kids who have gone through experiences of discrimination like this, and our, their reaction is to think, okay, this has to change. I want to make sure that this doesn't happen to other kids. And I think that sends a real message to adult readers that we can't let this happen anymore. If kids who've gone through this are really pushing for change, then we need to as well. How do you think this will impact the nation as a whole, um, considering what's been going on the last couple of years? And one of the problems that we have and you know, on this show, which was born out of the death of George Floyd, Two weeks later, we started our show because of that. But there are so many things that took place in the heat of that moment. You know, a lot of people were angry and upset and people were on board. But as time has passed, Charlie, one of the things that's kind of sad to me about this is there's something called ally fatigue. There's something called people, okay, getting tired of this and wanting to move on to get back to normal not realizing that there is no normal anymore for certain people. And I'm just wondering how you think this process with these kids, this whole support groundswell again, is going to impact the other elements of race in America. That's a really good question. And that's such a big question. I mean, I'll be curious. to. I I want to ask you the same question back. But I I think that one big piece of it is... um, I I agree with you about seeing ally fatigue. I think that kids and the stories and voices of kids have a real ability to cut through that and to cut through fatigue about, about staying involved. And I think that learning about what kids are going through and the way that making an impact now can immediately prevent kids from having this kind of experience 
from young students like your own kids or like the friends of your kids or like the kids who you see when you're walking to work to, to really make an impact on um, kids that you know and young people. If, if that can't cut through fatigue, I, I don't know what can, caring about the next generation. Yeah. That is always an important consideration, doing what's right for the next generation that's coming along. Charlie, there are lots of elements in this story that I haven't spoken about because, you know, as a journalist, I know this for a fact, you can only get so much of your story in print or so much of it on the air or so much of it, you know, just in a place where people can consume it. What are the other parts of the story that we don't see or that we, your thoughts in putting this whole thing together that make this important that, you know, I haven't asked you about that you think is important for us to know about this process? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's interesting because I wrote this for the New York Times for kids, which means that I wrote it with my audience as readers ages 8 to 13. So there's a lot a lot of nuance that you have to cut out when, when writing for primarily younger readers. I think a lot of it is about a lot of what I wish I could include is about the effects on adults and the kind of steps that adults need to take. I think that um, learning about what it was like for family members to try and support kids who've gone through this and what we've talked about around the, the ways that different generations think through creating change and think through, you know, what it means to quote unquote, be professional in a workplace and how they have learned from their own kids about not taking that as, as not taking that for granted, but seeing that as something that just needs to change. Um, I would love to be able to include a lot more from the conversations I had with family members in this. Well, um, if you have um, a specific thing that strikes you, and I'll give you a second to think about this, while you were preparing one of these stories that didn't make it in, please feel free to, to share it with us. But while, we're, while you're thinking about that, um, I want to point out that we want kids on colors. We, we want to have them and their stories on colors. And, you know, we've had a couple of teenagers share their reflections on race, which is a part of our show. It's a little snippet where a person identifies themselves. They say where they're from, what their ethnicity is, and just tell their story about race. But we want to hear from these kids at some point. And perhaps what we'll do, Charlie, is maybe follow your work if it's okay with you and the times to figure out some ways to do that. But is there, was there some particular kid? I know you told me about jet when we spoke before, was there some particular moment that got you or that gripped you more than any other moment when you were sort of putting this whole thing together? That's a really good question. I think one thing that really gripped me was talking to, you know, whenever I interviewed these kids, I asked them, why do you, why do you think that it's important for kids to be able to wear their hair how they want to? What's your message for other kids who might be going through something like this? And um, wh why, why do you think that this needs to change? And talking to younger kids about that was really interesting. One boy that I talked to, Michael, who is six and lives in small town Texas, um, his answer to that, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but he really talked about how, you know, just 
all all kids should be able to feel really joyous and happy with their hair. And he talked to me about, you know, how much he loves it when his grandmother plays with his hair and how much he really takes pride in it and wants to make sure that other kids are able to feel that way. And I think just just thinking about um, how kids can really cut through to the simple truths of issues like this and and really say that all kids deserve to feel happy and joyous in in the body that they're in and with the with the hair that they naturally have and just remembering that that's really at the core of it is just feeling really happy about who you are when you're six or seven or eight years old so i i I hope that that lands (laughs) that does that lands perfectly charlie what what you've done is put a nice cap on this story which you know this really captures the essence of you know children what's important to them is to make sure that they're well cared for make sure that they are given a a wholesome environment to grow up in and a part of that environment is feeling confident in themselves and understanding that there is uh, you know there are protections out there there are people that will protect them and help them to get to where they need to be so they can grow up to be big and strong and take care of themselves and other people so charlie Locke, yeah, you did amazing absolutely you, you did an amazing job, Charlie, with this. Thank you. Um, anything you want to add before we go? Thank you for having me. I think the only thing to add is just for listeners who are who are thinking about talking to their kids about this or who are thinking about having, you know, calling into the show or, or having their kids on the show. It's so important to talk to kids about this and they really can talk about it. These are hard subjects, but as your listeners know, it's so important to start thinking about when they're young and to really meet kids on their level and start talking to all kids about race and treating their questions with dignity and answering their curiosity and just making sure that they feel comfortable talking about it and and feeling proud of who they are when they're young. Charlie, thank you. Thank you. Stay tuned for some thoughts about race in America and details about our next guest. You're listening to Colors. My name is Sara Kamali. I'm a first-generation American whose parents were born in Afghanistan. I'm currently on Chumash land in California. Race is a sociopolitical construct that has been wielded as a tool of oppression and power. The term I prefer for race is skin color, and the term I use instead of racism is skin color oppression, because both of these terms point to the fact that superficial differences are exploited when discussing race and racism. In the United States, the notion that the white race is inherently biologically and culturally superior has justified centuries of denying human beings the same dignity, rights, and opportunities of their white counterparts. Examples include the enslavement of black people and the genocide of indigenous Americans to the xenophobic violence targeting many communities of color, including Asians, Latinos, and religious communities like Jews, Muslims, and Sikhs. This is despite the fact that whiteness itself is a fluid category that has changed over time. Race or the categorizing of people by physical features like skin color is also the underlying foundation of white supremacy, which is justified by a pseudoscience called eugenics, which really came to the fore in the 1800s. The false concept of race and the pseudoscience of eugenics have both been leveraged by white nationalists in Europe, 
Australasia, and North America, particularly the United States, to demand a white ethnostate oftentimes through terror. Ultimately, the concept of race is a fallacy because we are all one race, the human race. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Racist behavior can be perpetrated against people of one race by people of another. But it can also be perpetrated against people of one race by people of that same race. There's a term for that. Internalized racism. I tend to use the term internalized racism to represent the experience of people of color who have internalized the racism from society. Dr. Tandiwe D. Watts-Jones is a licensed clinical psychologist and a faculty member at the Ackerman Institute for the Family. Essentially what that means is that the proponents of racism and all the variety of ways in which it's exacted speak to or insist upon uh, the inferiority of people of color. And so when you've internalized that, that means that you have internalized to some degree that you are inferior. And sometimes, victims then turn around and take it out on family members, co-workers, and others of their same race. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. It's time to go again, and I want to say sincerely thank you. This is our 99th episode of Colors. And when I think back to what started this all, it's, it's been quite a journey. Just thinking about the thoughts right after George Floyd was killed, that led to me and Chris Core getting together to start this program. And all of the guests we've talked to throughout this process, it's, it's been quite a journey. So our next episode will be episode number 100. And I'm very grateful for everyone that's allowed us to get here. Thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Jakaitis, Joel Oxley, Julia Ziegler, Yuri Sack, Gretchen Soren, Shout Mouse Press, Tiffany Arnold, Sasa Akil, and for the music, we want to say thank you to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and to Offshane. And most of all, thank you for listening. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. DMV Download, the new daily podcast from WTOP News is out now. Hosts Megan Clorty and Luke Garrett get the story behind the story. Every weekday afternoon, Megan and I will go beyond the headlines with WTOP reporters and sources to bring you more on the biggest local stories impacting you, our fellow Washingtonians. The DMV Download podcast is available now on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. The DMV Download podcast is presented by Steamfitters Local 602.